You're listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. I hope all of you are looking forward to a 2024 that uh, the Lord is able to use us as a church to continue to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And uh, I know that Grace Hills has been such a blessing to me and my family. You know, we, we've been here a little, well, almost three years in April. And Grace is really true in Grace Hills' title. We've been met with nothing but grace and love and care as our family's been here. And so for that, we just want to thank you. Uh, I also want to thank Simon and the leadership here, the elders. Uh, what a privilege it is to be able to come before you this morning and share from the Word of God. It's a privilege that I don't take lightly. When we open up God's Word, we need to be true and we need to be accurate with God's Word. And so there's a level of responsibility there. And I know Simon takes that seriously. And I do too. And I just want to say thank you. It's a privilege. And Lord willing, as we look at His Word this morning, we'll be encouraged. So with that, uh, would you turn with me to the Gospel of Mark? We're going to be in Mark in chapter 7. And we're going to look at verses 1 to 13. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. I'm going to read from the New King James. I don't have anything against other translations. ESV is great. It's just more the translation that I'm familiar with and that I usually study in. So we'll have the words up on the screen here for you. I think you'll find your ESV translation is very similar to, to what we read here in the New King James. So starting in verse 1. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, that is Jesus, and having, uh, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Jesus answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. Jesus said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his mother or his father, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down. And many such things you do. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and Father, Lord, as we come before you this morning, the start of a new year, 
Lord, we're grateful for an opportunity to open your word, to start it the right way. Lord, we ask that your spirit would penetrate our hearts and our minds. Lord, that we would have ears to hear what you would have us hear this morning, that the the truth of your word would ring true in our hearts. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you who have gotten to know me a little bit, you may know that I'm a big fan of history, kind of a history buff. Um, I love reading about the founding fathers of America and many other types of history, World War II, uh, the Revolutionary War. And oftentimes in those histories, in those books, we read about these men who came together to found our nation, men like John Adams. And these men were so incredibly gifted and smart they understood what was required of a society in order for a society to stay together. It's like they foresaw what was going to happen. John Adams said this, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality or religion. Our constitution is designed only for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate for any other. It's like John Adams looked into the future and saw what was taking place. Do you feel the sense of dread and angst of what's going on in our society today? Just last night, 300 police officers had to go to the Del Amo Mall to protect the mall because there was possibly going to be mass looting. We see things like this taking place on a daily basis now, and it seems like it's accelerated in the last just even 20 years. You see, when a society who has laws has no foundation of religion or morality, what good are those laws? We're seeing that every day, aren't we? We're seeing that the laws that we have written down are really useless. Are people getting... Uh, punished? Are they, are they having to serve for their crimes? No, most often we're seeing people that they just get to walk free. Nothing happens. And so the laws that we have, our constitution, the laws that are in the books, what happens to them? They're voided. They're made useless. They're meaningless. They're meaningless to the people that take advantage of them, that break them willingly. And they're meaningless to us because People don't, we don't see justice being served. And that's what we see taking place with Jesus. Jesus is confronting this in Mark chapter 7. He's confronting a religious leadership that has basically voided God's laws. And it's interesting because it's not they, they didn't care about them. They did. They cared about God's laws. They thought they were holding them up. Matter of fact, they thought they were doing such a good job they kept adding to it. And they thought that that was pleasing to God. And so we see a delegation of scribes and Pharisees coming to Jesus. Mark chapter 7, verse 1. We see the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting. I, I even struggle with this. Oftentimes, we think Jesus' ministry was in Jerusalem. 
I mean, right? Jesus, he was crucified in Jerusalem. Uh, he cast, he uh, turned over the money tables in Jerusalem. He spent his time in Jerusalem. But that's actually not the case. Jesus' ministry was actually around the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum, which was on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And so here we see a, scri- uh, a delegation of scribes and Pharisees being sent to Jesus where his ministry was taking place, coming from the seat of religious power, which was Jerusalem. And verse 2 tells us that they came and they saw some of Jesus' disciples. And what were they doing? Eating bread. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But there was because they said they saw them eating bread with defiled, and Mark tells us what that means, unwashed hands. And what did they do? They found fault with this. You see, we should learn a little bit more about who these scribes and Pharisees were. The Pharisees were a group of learned, educated men. And I would say, if we want to compare them to what we see in our society today, they would be similar to a preacher, an elder, uh, a Bible teacher, a professor. That, that's on par with what a Pharisee was. They were men who loved the Old Testament law, or so it seemed. And what's interesting about the Pharisees is even though some of them sat on the ruling council in Jerusalem, which was called the Sanhedrin, they had a minority part of the Sanhedrin. But guess what? The people loved them. And so they actually were able to get things passed through the Sanhedrin because the other party, the Sadducees, they weren't loved by the people. The Pharisees were. And then we see the scribes. The scribes are essentially lawyers. And we know how much we love lawyers, right? Well, guess what? They, they did love the lawyers. They, they looked up to them. These were, these were arbiters of the law. They would look to the scribes to help, to help work out matters of the law. Hey, what should I do about this? And they would go to the scribe and ask. The scribes also copied the Old Testament. They were responsible for copying it. They were meticulous about it. They would count the spaces in between the words. They would count each letter and make sure that it was copied perfectly. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they were men who knew God's law. I would argue that they probably had a lot of it memorized, most of it. Matthew chapter 23 tells us that they sat in a position of authority. They sat in the seat of Moses, is what it says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 1 or 2, I believe. They sat in the seat of Moses. That means that they viewed themselves as the legal successors to Moses. Okay? They carried his authority. They carried his weight. But we also see the scribes and Pharisees a little bit earlier in the Gospel of Mark. If you flip over a couple pages to Mark chapter 3, we see another delegation that had been sent previously to Jesus. Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, we see Jesus heal somebody on the Sabbath day. What a great miracle, but not to the Pharisees. In verse 6, this is what we read. After Jesus had had, had done this, we read, Then the Pharisees went out, and immediately they plotted with the Herodians against Jesus, that they might destroy him. They see Jesus perform this amazing miracle, and what's their response? we got to get rid of this guy. 
And the Herodians, they were uh, also religious leaders that really loved Herod and they loved Rome. The Pharisees hated them. And yet the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And so they plot together with the Herodians to try and get rid of Jesus. In flip over one page, verse 22, the same chapter, we see the scribes. The scribes had also come down now from Jerusalem. Verse 22 says, and the scribes came down from Jerusalem and said, he has Beelzebub. By the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. They're ascribing Jesus's power, not to God. An amazing thing that took place, freeing a man of demonic possession. You know what their, their mind went to? He must be doing that by Satan's power, not by God's power. What a horrible thing to say. But that is the mindset that we see of this group. The vast majority of the time we see the scribes and the Pharisees in the Gospels, they're painted in a negative light. Jesus almost always condemns them. There's a few exceptions, and usually it's just individuals like, like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea. These were men that were the exception, not the rule. So we see the scribes and Pharisees back in chapter 7, and Mark gives us a little bit more information, which is why I like the Gospel of Mark. See, as we've learned from Simon going through the, the book of Acts, we learn about Mark, about John Mark. John Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. John Mark is the reason why Barnabas and Paul got into a dispute and separated from one another. And church history tells us that Mark then goes to Rome with Peter. And while he's in Rome, he hears Peter giving all of his messages, and he writes those messages down. And that's how we get the gospel of Mark. So Mark's readership was going to be a Roman readership. It would have been written to Gentiles. They wouldn't have been familiar with the minutia of Judaism, of what was taking place. And so Mark gives us a little bit more information about why the Pharisees were finding fault with what Jesus' disciples did. Verse 3, for the Pharisees and the Jews, they do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other such things they do, like the washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels and couches. Wow. It seems like a lot, doesn't it? Uh, isn't anything wrong with washing your hands before you eat? That's what our moms used to tell us, right? Make sure you wash your hands before you eat. Well, that's not what was going on here. This was not a hygienic reason. This was a ritual. This was a ceremony. And what, were, what was the concern of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Jews of their day? The concern was Gentile contamination. If they had gone to the marketplace and exchanged money, and that money had possibly been in the hand of a Gentile, uh-oh, I got to wash. I got to be careful. I don't want any Gentile contamination. And so they would go through this ritual. Actually, the word there in the Greek means that they would use their fist, and they would scrub themselves in a certain way, and they would make sure that the water fell off their hands in a certain way. They were meticulous about it all about being concerned about some kind of defilement. Now, in the Old Testament, there was the possibility of becoming unclean. Like if you touched a corpse, you were unclean. 
But we find nothing in the Old Testament law about this kind of ritual, making sure that you don't have any defilement before you eat. This was all stuff that they made up. They made this stuff up because they thought that they were pleasing God in doing this. And so in verse 5, we see the root of the problem that's going on here. The Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, why aren't your disciples following our traditions? Why aren't they following the tradition of the elders? But they're eating bread with unwashed hands. This is the crux of the issue for the Pharisees. The crux of the issue is, why aren't you following our rules? Why aren't your disciples following our rules? In Mark chapter 6, we see an amazing miracle that happened. If you turn back to Mark 6, you'll see the feeding of 5,000 people. Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish and miraculously multiplied that to feed, the Bible says, 5,000 men, not including women and children. I think we can easily surmise there were seven, 8,000 people there that Jesus fed that day. What an amazing miracle. Imagine with me for just one second. Well, first, let me say, news travels fast, right? Something like that happens. News gets out about that taking place, and it gets around quickly. No doubt, word got to Jerusalem quickly about this miracle that Jesus had performed. So many people witnessed it. And so imagine with me for a second a conversation of somebody who had gone back to Jerusalem after being there that day and seeing Jesus perform this miracle. And let's say he's having a conversation with a Pharisee, one of his friends. And he says, man, you should have seen this. It was amazing what Jesus did. This little boy came up. He had a lunch for himself, five little barley loaves and two fish. Jesus told us all to sit down in groups of 50 and 100. So we all sat down and he started handing food out. And more food kept coming and more food kept coming and more food kept coming. And before we knew it, everybody had had plenty to eat. And not only that, there was food left over. This was incredible. And his Pharisee friend, hearing him say this, looks at him and says, wow, that's amazing. Did you guys wash your hands before you ate? (laughs) Yeah, right? That was their mentality. That's what they were thinking. Did you wash your hands before you ate? Did you follow our rules that we set up? You see, we have a tendency to be like this. We can be so nitpicky about what people do, even in our own church. I don't like how they did that. I don't like how they did that. I don't like how we serve communion. I don't like how we sang the song this morning. We can get in this Pharisaic mindset of wanting to call things out on every every nitpicky little thing. And that's wrong. We need to have grace. I mean, the Pharisees should have been, what an amazing miracle. But they were not. That's not their response. So how, we, how does Jesus respond to this? Jesus is basically confronted with, hey, Jesus, why aren't your, fair, why aren't your disciples following me? following our traditions. And what's Jesus' response to this? Well, Jesus doesn't respond to them directly, interestingly enough. 
As so often is the case in the Gospels, Jesus presents another more glaring issue that's taking place in the lives of the people that confront him, right? He doesn't confront the scribes and the Pharisees and just say, well, washing your hands, that's not in the Old Testament. No, what he does is he confronts them with their own issue. Let's look at verses six to eight. Jesus answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things that you do. Jesus' first response to them is saying, Isaiah accurately talked about you in the Old Testament. Isaiah 29, 13. Isaiah was accurate about what he said. And he says, this is about you. This is about you guys. Jesus, Jesus also calls them hypocrites. This is a frequent title that we see Jesus give to the religious leadership of their day. We think of a hypocrite as being somebody who says, oh, don't do that, and then they turn around and do that. Right? That's, that's the English understanding usually of what a hypocrite is. But the Greek word for hypocrite, that's not really what that means. There actually wasn't a, a connotation of morality or fraud in that word. Actually, what the, relig- what the literal word of hypocrite would mean was answering from behind a mask. And it was used of an actor who would wear a mask to portray somebody else. And I think an appropriate word in, that we would understand is like a masquerade, right? You would go to a masquerade ball. You would go with a mask on as somebody else, somebody that you're not. The person underneath that mask is not the person that's being put on display for everybody to see. And the scribes and the Pharisees were hypocrites. Jesus knows their hearts. The person that was underneath that mask was not the person that the people saw and was on display. All the people would look around and say, wow, they're so holy. They're so great. And Jesus says, I know your heart. He says that they worship him in vain, which means their their worship is meaningless. It's futile. Why? Because their hearts are far from him. They had no relationship with God. Zero. They were just interested in their rules and in people following what they wanted wanted them to follow. And then Jesus says this in verse 8. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold on to the tradition of men. And I want you to think about what this means. He's basically using the terms like this. You're casting aside this and you're holding on to this. It's the same word that's used when Jesus calls the apostles to him. And what does it say the apostles do? They leave their nets and they go and they follow Jesus. They cast their nets aside and they turn and they follow Jesus. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees are doing just the opposite. They're casting God's word aside and they're holding on to their traditions. This is more important to me than this. We can usurp God's authority 
by putting ourselves in a position that God holds. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were doing here. They were actually making themselves like gods with a a lowercase g. What they were doing was they were creating rules and regulations that had nothing to do with God's law. And in effect, they were making themselves gods to the people. It was the sin of pride, the exact sin that we see Lucifer commit when he was in heaven. God, I want to be like you. I'm as good as you are. And that's what was going on. The scribes and Pharisees were taking God's place. They were becoming like God's. The Mishnah is the written, wor- the, the written oral tradition of the Jews. And it was written down about 200 years after Christ lived. Until then, it was orally passed down from generation to generation. This meticulous washing that we read about, this was part of their oral tradition. And then it was written down in this book called the Mishnah. This is what the Mishnah says. It is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict Scripture itself. I want you to hear what they're saying here. It is a greater offense if you're teaching something that goes against what the rabbis teach than it is if you teach something that goes against Scripture itself. Can you see how twisted this has become? You see, they were taking God's word and they were making it meaningless. It was there. It was still important. But they didn't care about it. And here's where we get to how Jesus identifies what's going on. What little thing they're doing that's actually a big thing that is voiding out the word of God. Let's look at verses 9 to 12. And Jesus said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect. So the, the Jewish people had this tradition, the men, they had this tradition of using this word called korban. And through this tradition, really what we can see is that God's word was being voided through this tradition. Okay? And that's something that we need to realize. The, the cultural practices that we do on a daily basis, they can actually have the effect of making God's word meaningless. And we see this taking place with this example. Let's see how this works. What's going on here is Jesus uses two commandments that are very clear in the Old Testament. One, you're probably very familiar with, right? One of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Now, the word honor carries a sense of respect. Yes, that's very important. But you know what else it carried? It carried a sense of financial responsibility. Honoring your father and mother was providing for them when they got older. That was honoring to them. And then we see a second command, a negative one. He who curses or slanders 
his father and mother. What's the penalty for that? Death. It's pretty serious. God took it seriously. If you lied about your parents, if you said something false about your parents, the Old Testament penalty for that was death. I'm very, very thankful that that is not the case today (laughs) because I've deserved the death penalty many times over. And I'm sure you can understand and, and agree with me on that. And so two very clear commands from the Old Testament. And then Jesus says, but in contrast, okay, so here's our commands from Moses. In contrast, this is what you do. You say, mom, dad, whatever profit you might have had from me, that's korban. That's a gift to God. And I think this played out in two scenarios that we can see. The first scenario would be that, sorry if my iPad would work here. The first scenario would be that men were encouraged by the religious leaders of the day to take a vow that said, all of the goods, all the wealth that I have when I die, that's korban. Okay, and that was just the Jewish word for saying it's a gift that's going to go to God. That sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, we, we want to give to the church. Their church was, at that time, it was the temple, the temple treasury. They would have assigned their money saying, when I pass away, I'm going to bequeath this money to the temple. That sounds great. But here's what would happen. Their parents, their parents would get older. And they would, need, they would need financial help. And what takes place? Well, a scribe or a Pharisee would come along and they would say, ah, remember, you made a promise. All that stuff you have, that's a gift to God. That's korban. Uh, you need to keep your promise and thereby preventing them from helping their own family. They would void out God's word. Honor your father and mother. Nope. You need to keep your promise. A lesser law that was in the Old Testament, they would major in the minors. Okay, a lesser law. They would take that and make them keep it rather than do what was right and help their parents. Example number two. Men would get around their obligation to help their mom or their dad by saying, oh, sorry, mom, dad. I I know you need help. But you know, it's Korban. I, I dedicated it to the temple. And I, man, I wish I could help you, but you know, I love God. And thereby, they would allow themselves to keep their own possessions for themselves and not help their own family. Having the same effect, completely voiding out God's word, making it meaningless. You see, we can void out God's word by the things that we say. They would say korban. It was a tradition, but it was also something that they would say. It was common knowledge that that's how they would refer to things. Does your mouth ever get you into trouble? I know mine does. Um, I have many people here that can attest to that. (laughs) My family's here, my wife. 
my boss and my friend Dustin is here. Uh, he can attest to that. My mom can attest to that. Matter of fact, uh, much, to my, uh, m- much to my shame, I, I say that I got in an argument with her a couple weeks ago and was, was mean to her, said things I shouldn't have said. I had to apologize for, to her for that. I was not being honoring to her. It's embarrassing. And yet, we can void out God's word by the words that come out of our mouth. So what was the effect of this tradition, this Korban tradition? Well, the effect was men didn't have to take care of their parents. They were avoiding out God's word. And then Jesus concludes with this in verse 13. Making the word of God of no effect through your traditions which you have handed down and many other such things you do. This wasn't the only thing. There was a lot of other things that they were doing like this. You see, we can void the word of God through our actions. And we don't have time to go into it, but I would encourage you to look at Matthew 23 when you have a a chance. Jesus goes through and points out issue after issue after issue that the scribes and Pharisees had of the things that they were doing through their actions that was making God's word meaningless, voiding it out. When you get a chance, read Matthew 23. I think think you'll be enlightened on some of the things that are taking place there. So what's our response to this? We've seen that the religious leaders of Jesus' day were blind to who Jesus was. They didn't care. They were there just to prove their own disbelief about Jesus. They had come down probably in direct response to him feeding the 5,000 people, the miracle that they had heard about. And they were so concerned with the rules and the laws that Jesus was not following. You weren't following our rules. So if we can void out God's rules by our practices, the things that we do by our words, is there a way for us to validate God's law, God's rules? Is there a way for us to validate God's, God's word? And when I say validate, I don't mean that in some way we're proving that it's true. God's word is true whether we prove it or not. Whether we believe it or not, that doesn't invalidate God's word, right? God's word is true regardless. But I think there is a sense in which we can validate God's word, in which we can agree with it. When I say validate, I mean agree. When we agree with something, we're validating it. We're, we're saying, yeah, I, I agree with that. It's true. Let's turn to John chapter 6 real quick, and we're going to close with this. John chapter 6. It's a long chapter. We're not going to read the whole thing, I promise. This ties directly in with what we see in our story in Mark chapter 7. You see, in John chapter 6, we see the feeding of the 5,000. And in verse 22, we read these words, on the following day. So we know this this is the day after Jesus fed the seven, eight, nine thousand people that were there. Okay? And what we see taking place here is that the people are searching for Jesus. 
He had done this miracle on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And that night, his disciples all get in the boat. And if you read, another amazing miracle takes place that night. Jesus walks across the water, the Sea of Galilee. And the people are like, where's Jesus at? Where'd he go? We saw his disciples get into a boat, but Jesus wasn't with him. And so they all get into boats and they go over to the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, I don't know if there was like a Galilee Uber or, you know, a a boat Uber at that time. You can only imagine how many people were there, how many people got in boats and went across the other side of the sea. I'm sure it was quite a few. Whoever had the boat taxis, they made some good money that day. And so we see this multitude of people traveling across to the west side of the Sea of Galilee, and they find Jesus there. And it's almost like it's uh, in, in verse 25, they found him on the other side of the sea, and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And it's like, they're like they can't believe he's there. He had walked across the water that night. And what does Jesus respond to them with? He says, I know why you're here. You're not here because you saw me perform this amazing miracle and you believe that I am the Christ. You're here to get more food from me. They were thinking completely in physical terms. I know why you're here. You don't believe in me. You're just here to get more food for yourselves. And so that creates this dialogue. And Jesus says, if you knew who it was who was giving you this food, you could have eternal life. If you worked as hard as you did to find me, if you did just a tenth of that to know who I am, you could have eternal life. And so their response, the people's response is, hey, great, God, or Jesus, sorry. Hey, great, Jesus, what do we need to do? What works do we need to do that will please God? What are the works of God that we can do? So in John 6, 28 and 29, the people said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? It's the same mentality that the scribes and the Pharisees had. The exact same. Doing things that they think are going to be pleasing to God. Even the multitude who'd seen this miracle had this same mentality. And I love Jesus' response. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. You want to do the work of God? Believe in Jesus. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, would be like a conversation that I would have with my wife. Hey, honey, uh, I'm going to do some work around the house. And my wife says, great, what can I do to help? And I say, you know what you can do to help? You can sit on the couch and you can relax. You can read a book. Am I telling my wife that she needs to do work? No, just the opposite. Jesus has done the work for you. He's done the work for you. What work do we need to do? We don't need to do work. We need to believe in him. If the scribes and Pharisees had just come to him with the right attitude, without being so concerned about voiding out God's word, and instead putting their laws, they would have seen this. And they would have had the opportunity to have eternal life. And so we see bread 
is the reason why the scribes and Pharisees found fault. We see bread is the reason why the 5,000 people followed Jesus the next day. And Jesus ends with this in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. What was the solution to what they were looking for? It was Jesus. Jesus was that solution. Friends, do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe that he is the Lamb of God? Do you believe that he is Messiah, the Christ, who came into this world? As Simon said on Christmas Eve, the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus gives you what he promises he would give you, which is eternal life when you believe in him? Do you believe that? The scribes and the Pharisees completely missed it. They were the religious leaders of the day. They had the, gospel, they had the Old Testament memorized. They should have seen it, and they were blind. The multitude saw him perform miracles, turned bread, five loaves of bread into enough to feed thousands of people. And what did they do? They didn't believe. And Jesus is saying, all you needed to do was believe in me. You see, we can void God's word, we can make it worthless, or we can validate God's word. How can we validate God's word? By believing in what he says in his word. When we believe what Jesus says, when we believe what God says in his word, we validate God's word. As we move into 2024, I want to encourage you. Let's not look to void God's word. Let's look to God's word as validation for what God has taught us and believe that. And we can have a blessed 2024 if we do that. I'm not saying everything's going to be great and roses and rainbows. No, there's going to be struggles in life. But when we have the knowledge of God's word and it's dependent on this and it's not dependent on me, man, what a better place to be. Because it's not about me. It's about what God's word says. It's about what Jesus did for us. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Grace Hills Church. Thank you for the leadership here. Thank you, Father, that they are committed to reading your word. Thank you that they are committed to what your word says. Thank you that they are committed to validating your word and not voiding it. Lord, there's things that we do every day in our lives that go against what your word teaches. We're sinners. Father, we confess that sin to you. Lord, we know that we need your strength and your help. But when we look at your word and we believe it and it's dependent on you and not on us, Father, we can be freed to serve you in a way that you would have us serve. Thank you for your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.